um, anyone new to our story, I'm Carrie Cariello. I'm married to a man named Joe. This week's blog is about him and marriage for anybody interested. We had a huge argument last week. And, and so we sort of tell the story of how we recover from such things. And um, he's fascinated to, to read it. He hasn't read it yet, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm married to a man named Joe. He's a dentist and we have five kids. Um, my oldest is a sophomore in college. Uh, my second son, Jack, is diagnosed with autism. He is in a residential slash college program a couple of hours away. He's 18. <clears throat> I have a son about to be 17 next week. I have a 15-year-old daughter, Rose, and then my youngest, Henry, is 13. So um, Jack was diagnosed when he was about 18 months old. We, uh, we, we had our first couple of kids are very close in age. So my oldest son was only a year old. But I always say Jack was born with an IEP in his hand. You know, we kind of knew right off the bat that he was presenting very differently than our first son did. We lived in Buffalo, New York at the time. And, you know, I'm kind of out of the loop in terms of new diagnoses lately. But I'll say, you know, 17 years ago, it was nearly impossible to get into a doctor's office. It was months upon months of waiting lists. And my husband and I kept saying, well, like six months to get in to be seen, this is going to be over by then. He'll be done. He'll be, he'll be better by then. We were so naive. So um, we got his official diagnosis in, in, in when he was 18 months old, but it didn't at that point come as a shock to us. I was almost relieved to know we had something to work with. We had sort of a starting point. Um, in the name of autism. Now, that being said, I was a very young mother. It was a very new mother. I had three children under the age of three at that time. And I did not realize, which I think, again, naivete was my friend, our friend, the lifelong impact this diagnosis was going to make upon us. Um, I do have a book, and, and, and one of the first chapters in the book talks about the day he was diagnosed. It was a day in November, and the very next day, <laughs> I took a pregnancy test and found out I was pregnant with my fourth child. So I, I think, you know, autism for better or for worse kind of got folded into the mix of just many children and, and, um, and new motherhood for me. Um, I would say the grief of it, you know, kind of visits me every now and again, even to this day. I was talking to a group of moms last weekend, and they were new moms like with, with one and two year olds and saying, you know, I see my friend's son do this and I just can't help but be devastated that my kiddo's not doing that. And I said, yeah, that is, that is part of it. I wish it wasn't. It simply is. I always say autism is heartbreak by a thousand paper cuts. And, um, you know, to this day, we were watching the World Series the other night. Uh, we were rooting for Philly, by the way, because my son is in Philly. But but I'll tell you, I cannot stand to see those Philadelphia players walk up. I don't know if anybody watched it. My God, with that greasy hair. Anyway, there was a pitcher on the mound and he was a great big, tall, strong guy. Now Jack is six foot five, you know, and I thought, what could he have been if autism didn't kind of, I always say, like get its sticky fingers all over him because he doesn't move his body in a, in a typical manner. He doesn't, he's not athletic at all. He, um, he, you know, works very hard for regulation and to keep his body still and to keep his limbs kind of from twitching and jumping. So, 
you know, to this day, I still have moments where my breath catches and I just think, what, who would he have been without it? And I don't know, is there anything specifically you wanted me to answer or does anybody have questions or? Um, how about if we um, explore a little bit of how the diagnosis affected your acceptance of who you are as a parent, who your mm -hmm. child is and how it affected you in a more global family way. So grandparents and mm -hmm. siblings, um, you know, going to events where you're going to meet people who don't know yet and things like that. That's a great question um, because 17 years ago, autism wasn't on everybody's lips like it is now. I, it was truly, I the only exposure I had had to autism was the movie Rain Man. That's all I knew about it. So um, once we got the official diagnosis, we, we, we were pretty upfront about it. I know some people like to keep it under the vest or, you know, keep it close for a bit while they adjust. We had been on this journey to figure out why he wasn't speaking, why he never slept, why he could sit for hours and just, we had this little room in Buffalo and my husband had tiled the first few steps of it. And Jack could sit there and just trace the grout outline for hours if, if we didn't interrupt him. At the same time, he could explode at a moment's notice. So we had, you know, we had friends and family who were already kind of part of that journey. And for that, I was grateful because I didn't have to kind of drop this bomb on everybody. That being said, you know, grandparents, they, they, uh, <laughs> they like to uh, sort of ease, ease it up, soothe. Their temptation is to soothe. Like, oh, well, everybody learns at their own pace. I heard that a lot. You know, don't rush it. You don't really know that there's something with him. Don't attach a label to him. That was some pushback I got quite a bit. I wasn't afraid of the label. I was afraid almost of not having a label because if I didn't have a label, then what was going on here? And I always say to new parents who are reluctant to label, <clears throat> that's certainly your decision. You know you and your family and your child best. My fear was if we didn't give it a, a label, they people were going to label him different uh, themselves anyway. They were going to label him difficult, rude, rigid, hard to be around, unlikable. People will label anyway. So that was my point of view on that. Um, you know, as as a couple, it took its toll on us in the early years for sure. We had very different points of view of how to accept a diagnosis. I talk a lot about how. A mother's grief around it is loud, it's colorful, and it fills up the whole room. You know, there's no space for anything but the worry. In my relationship, my husband grieves, I call him the forever father. He grieves much, much differently. He's very quiet about it. You know, he's private. It, it takes place like when everybody's gone to bed and he's on the couch. I think that's when he really processes what it's like to have this complicated son. So we were young parents, we were young people who had a lot of experience in many aspects of grown-up life. And it took me years to understand that he is grieving and he, he just because he's not, you know, throwing himself headlong into research and articles and websites doesn't mean he's not ruminating all the time that life is unfolding very differently than we expected. Um, yeah, I became pretty comfortable quickly with explaining that Jack had autism. 
I was talking to a mom recently and she was really raw. She was really on the cusp of just finding out and like, how do I tell people? I don't know how to tell people without becoming emotional. And I said, I recommend that people actually take out a piece of paper and write down three to four go-to phrases to say, you know? We found out he has autism, we're working on a few things. Um, yeah, we're pursuing some services, we're working on speech. I like to end things with, we're working on it, because it kind of, you know, ends the back and forth. Well, what are you doing? Well, how is this gonna, you know, uh, have you heard of the horses? Have you heard of the gluten-free? I just say, we're working on it. And once you start repeating those catchphrases enough times, you they lose their emotional power over you. Um, and you're able to articulate, yeah, he's, he is a neurodiverse thinker and he brings a lot to us and we're just working through all that we can. So, Wow. It's really incredible to hear how you really dove right into it. Um, I definitely hear that emotional piece where it's, it's hard to feel like you're going to break down every time we talk about it. Right. And, and you don't want to put yourself in the place where you're going to be vulnerable to everybody at the same time, right? You don't need to open up to the whole world. Right. And, you know, I, I was this other young mom, she was like, I just can't go to the birthday parties right now. And I said, let me give you permission to not go to the birthday parties for a two-year-old, right? I had a miscarriage way before all this. And I gave myself permission, all my friends were having babies, to keep myself emotionally safe. Because, um, Kids like ours, kids like my son, Jack, only know how to match the highest regulatory system in the room. Um, they only know how to elevate according to what everyone else's nervous system is. So if I'm walking around emotionally charged because I had to go to a two-year-old's birthday party, it's not really healthy for anybody in the house. So give yourself permission to bow out of what doesn't feel right right now. What did support mean to you? What kind of support was helpful? What kind of support um, was unhelpful and might possibly be helpful to somebody else? What mm. kind of support do you wish you would have gotten? Do you mean like family-wise or like so services in the school? Um, no, I'm talking about more family-wise, friends-wise. Um, sometimes comments or one-liners that you get from people are helpful and they carry you through the day. Sometimes they keep you up at night and are not helpful at all. Um, is there something that you could share about the support that you did receive or wish that you would have received? I think I had some really, we were surrounded by great people who met Jack where he was. I had one particular friend in Buffalo at the time where we lived who just took him for who he was. It was like he couldn't ruffle her. We'd go over, you know, he was very into music at that time. He was, it was, that's when you had that, um, you would prop that iPod up and put your playlist on it. I mean, and, and she would have it ready to go for him. It was like, there's nothing he could do in her house or he, she welcomed him with open arms. I was grateful that we had a handful of those places to go where I could just relax and breathe as opposed to always being on edge in other people's houses or at family gatherings. I also didn't appreciate, and I, I don't like to dwell on the negative, but I do think looking back, when we went to holidays, at, at, my husband's the youngest of six. Holidays are huge um, in his family. And we would go and say we'd be working on a certain thing. Like Jack went through a phase where he always took his shirt off. And we didn't like that. I didn't, I didn't care for that behavior. So we constantly were putting the shirt back on. 
you know, but you'd, you'd be working on this 390 days a year and then you'd go to Thanksgiving and somebody would say, oh, just let it go, Carrie, let it go. It's who cares? It's, it's Thanksgiving. Who cares if he pokes holes in all the bread or does whatever? You know, when you are an autism mom, you just can't let it go because the next day you're starting all over again. And finally, I put that in terms that they could relate to, right? Because they really just loved him and they wanted him happy. And I said, you know, you might think you're doing him a favor, but tomorrow's going to be really hard for him because we have to start back at step one. And that's hard for his brain to catch up to. So just let us run our course. Let us be the parents. And uh, he'll still enjoy the day with his shirt on. Wow. That's incredible because you're, you were dealing with um, a very loving um, approach where they accept him for who he is. Therefore, why are you working so hard to kind of push him into a mold that you feel is important for life? Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That was exactly it. I think it came, you know, it came from a place of love. They adore him and my whole, our whole extended family adores Jack. Uh, but they don't understand what, what setbacks look like in the autism world. And it sounds like you really were able to advocate for him by just explaining in a way that they could understand that it's really in Jack's best interest. It's not just you as a parent doing something that works well for you. You really have Jack's best interest in mind. And as much as they are trying to tap into Jack and um, show him their love, mm -hmm. right, by, by just accepting him, you're able to explain to them in a way that they could understand that it's really in Jack's best interest, which is fantastic. Um, how would you say you were able to, or develop a way to balance his needs and your other children's needs? You know, people ask me that a lot. Um, and looking back, a lot of those early years were simply a blur. I had five kids in uh, less than six years. And wow. a lot of it was kind of survival just in general. We kind of moved them about the earth in a little pack, right? We all ate together. They all went to bed together at the same time. So in some ways having, you know, one time a doctor said to me, the best thing you could do is give him a big family. It was not intentional. I think I was pregnant with my fifth at that point. So it was like, he was probably just trying to make me feel better, but it, it turned out to be true. Um, a lot of people wonder how we decided to have more kids. And if we were worried about another diagnosis and it was a little bit in the back of my mind, but we were just kind of swept into the day to day and we didn't give it a whole lot of thought. Um, I, I did worry from time to time if everybody was getting what they needed, but the larger group of them um, made it so Jack couldn't be in charge. Jack likes to be in charge. He likes to decide what we're watching, what we're eating, what the schedule is for the day. I think if I had only one or two of them, I could have easily given into that. But we had other people with other opinions around here and nobody's very quiet about opinions around here. So that was helpful. Now I have two in college, so I only have three kids home, which is like, it's so quiet and so different than it was just three years ago in this house. Um, last night, only two were home for dinner and it was like, well, now what? You know, it's seven o'clock, we've eaten, it's pitch black outside. So we're trying to be creative. We went, we, we took a ride over to this farm to, it was a full moon here and to see the stars and they kicked a ball around for a little bit. We stopped and got some ice cream. So what I would say to newer parents um, who are struggling to 
to make sure they have enough resources for everybody. It's what I, I said to a new mom not long ago. I said, you are doing everything right. You are doing all the right things and people get what they need. They just do. We don't realize how long and yet short this season of motherhood is, right? I mean, 18 years with a child at home is a long time and it goes fast. And at the same time, like now I have this opportunity with the three that are here to create different traditions that Jack's not necessarily propelling forward, to create different activities that feel good to us. Um, I did have the three that are home, Charlie, Rose, and Henry. We were out for lunch a couple weeks ago and I said, you know, I do worry that Jack got the, got the most of me. You know, you do have, a diagnosed child does take up more of your time. That is not a choice. That is simply a reality. And he did. And my old, my, my middle son said, that is, that's not how I remember it. I don't remember it that way. I remember us doing everything together. And so they remember the good things. They really do. I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling new moms that story all the time now. Don't beat yourself up over it. And the truth is, Although Jack is, you know, my diagnosed child, I have other children who are equally complicated in my house. And motherhood truly ebbs and flows. There's one that always needs a tiny bit more of you than you think. When you got a diagnosis for Jack, right? Obviously you had concerns. There were things that were bothering you, things you were worried about long-term. How would you contrast that to today when Jack is in college? Um, your concerns from them, were they valid? Did they come true? Um, do you see life differently today? Are you less concerned? How would you? That's that? an interesting question. I mean, the things I was concerned about back then were really like day to day, you know, can I get, can he take the bus? Um, I mean, through puberty, my concerns changed vastly. Uh, this is a phrase you hear a lot, but it's very true in my world right now. Small kids, smaller problems, big kids, bigger problems. So Jack is in a college program. He's in a residential space with 44 other neurodiverse thinkers. And he takes classes at a regular college. He's taking three classes. So uh, just to give you a window of my worries are now bigger, um, Jack struggles greatly with regulation. He's incredibly supported at this facility. There's staff there from 7 a.m. to 11 at night. It's a tremendous amount of scaffolding to keep him successful. But he does go to this campus and he's surrounded by a, a whole, all different kinds of students. Well, his laptop wasn't working in class. And so he took it upon himself to go to the college's IT program, IT department. And he was, he, by the time he got there, he was really deregulated six foot five guy. He's kind of moving quickly. He's opening the laptop and closing it and muttering. He talks to himself all the time. He wasn't with any of his people from the program. So there was no one to kind of interface for him, right? I spent 18 years interfacing world to boy, boy to world. And now he has more and more time where no one's doing that for him. And what happened is he made some students uncomfortable and he got written up with an incident report um, that got sent back to the program where he is. Now, the people in the program assured me this is part of the process. It's happened numerous times with other students. It is a learning opportunity. You know, as a mother, I'm just thinking many things. 
thinks? What did they think of him, first of all? And will we ever get to a point where I don't think anybody has to interface for him? And so, you know, those are very real concerns for me right now. Also, we we launched a, a, an 18-year-old into the world, but emotionally, he's closer to 12. So every morning he wakes up, he takes a, he's in this small city, it's a really great area. He takes a walk to Dunkin' Donuts by himself. I'm think, I mean, I have to actually just not think about it because for Parents Weekend, we we walked around the city with him, and like he is like right in that crosswalk, you know, like ready to jump as soon as like he can. And I just think I I pour my mother's healing elixir over him. Somebody recommended I do that, and you just think the universe has a plan. How would you say um, you ventured into the community space? So from when he was little, it sounds to me like within your family, he was integrated right away. What about into the community setting? And now that he's in college and he's in the community setting, um, what can you say that you have done to get him there? Mm. Well, two things about people ask a lot about how we what like what was successful in terms of knowing he could be on his own and i i didn't know this at the time while we did it i just did it because i needed a break but we sent him a few years in a row to a just a regular low demand you know ymca overnight camp it was a week-long camp with his siblings and he did that several times he always spent the night with grandparents so when it came time to drop him off, he also did a three-week summer program at a different college um, this summer between junior and senior year. So when we dropped him off, I was like, okay, I know he can be away from home. I know he can sleep away from home. He can be away from us. So I always recommend to parents that if you're if you this is your long-term goal or it's in the back of your mind, start um, experimenting with those kinds of things now. Um, in terms of the community, you know, we were a family of seven. We had to be able to be out and about in our community. We live in a very small town. I wrote a piece about it for this town magazine we have in our community, just saying, you know, um, everybody knew who we were. Everybody knew who Jack was. And they didn't always see the best of us. And that's a reality when you have a kid like Jack who will scream out the F word in the middle of the middle school talent show. And your husband like knocks over chairs trying to get him to the car. And, you know, we were not always our best selves. Um, that's a, that's a icky place to be, but it's just real. And so we lived our lives and we, we did our best with community events. Sometimes that meant taking two cars. If one of us had to leave early with him, you know, we made it work for us, but we also didn't really isolate from the community. It sounds like you went full speed ahead and you made modifications as needed, as opposed to holding yourselves back. So you were really true to, true to yourself and true to your family. And then if it didn't mm -hmm. work, you kind of went with plan B and escaped when you needed to. Yes, always have a plan B. <laughs> what would you say as far as schooling and therapy? Um, that was helpful to you and him, or what did you need to advocate for so that he would get the most of what he needed? I just answered this question, and I want—I'm going to write about it somehow. Um, 
because I get asked a lot about like the IEP table. What, what, what do we do with the IEP table? You know, and this young mom was like teary eyed. She had a little guy like four and what should I ask for? And you know, what, what did, what did you, what worked the best and like all of that, you know, and looking back, like I'm an old mom now, right? I have the, I have these years to reflect on. And I will tell you, honestly, from the heart, there wasn't one therapy or resource or anything on that IEP that changed Jack's life, course, the course of his life in either direction. So I urge people don't make it about the IEP table because you're trying to create a whole child, right? And that incorporates many, many different moving pieces. For Jack, it was having a safe landing at home. It was um, the perfect combination of medication. It was a team that met him where he was, but knew how to push him when it was time. It was the combination of speech therapy and OT and all of those things. But really, and this is the hardest part, and parents are gonna hate this when I say it, it's about you being a whole person. If you're not resourced, if you're not full, if you're not connected to the people around you and your husband or your wife, you're not gonna launch a whole child into the world. So I just encourage people to take this 360 degree view of it. And you make that IEP table, just one little tiny table, like it's in a doll's house. That's really how much weight it carries. Is it important? Of course. Your child's gonna get what they need. Um, don't make that such a war zone. I can't say that there's any one thing, you know, we tried that made everything line up for him. It just sort of all fell into place naturally. I love how you're so accepting and practical. I'm just wondering, is that something that you're naturally inclined to be? Is that something that you had to work to develop? Well, I'm old, so that helps. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm naturally inclined to kind of take life as it is and, and, and make the best of it. And, you know, uh, and be be um, direct when I need to and ask for what I want. I have no issues asking for what I want. But I think I'm really loving this place of having older kids and being able to see that the smallest details that I thought were huge in my life really came to mean nothing. Meaning that as he got older and as he developed, the things that you were so concerned about kind of you know, shifted into the practical of where he is today and loving him for where he is. Yes, yes, exactly that. You know, I um, I look back on the the things that that worried me about all of my kids and think, oh, those that was that was life in the details. I like living life in the broad strokes now. That's beautiful, and the fact that he's in a college program really means that you're propelled into the next um, the next. I would say big stage in his life, right? The independence and and where he goes from here after college program ends and and those bigger the bigger real world integration that you know you're kind of almost you're almost ready for. Yeah. I mean it's I always said I wished for a crystal ball to see you know, when he was in first grade, what did third grade look like? When he was in fourth grade, what was puberty going to look like? And um, I never saw past 18. I never wondered until a year ago when I was like, oh, all services stop on May 10th. And then this kid's going to just be here <laughs> next to me that I really thought it's time to put a plan in place for what 
what the next few years post high school look like. Wow. And I guess that's probably a common um, response where parents will look at today, tomorrow, maybe even in two years, but not necessarily down the road where you are today, um, which I think really is what brings your perspective into focus here, because when parents could see a child who has grown and developed to become an adult and to be in a college program um, where he has to navigate the real world with less support than he ever had. Mm -hmm. um, it's really beautiful to see how you've taken him from, from diagnosis with the acceptance and brought him all the way up to here and, and see how he's doing today, which is really, really inspiring. Um, I'm wondering if we could now open up the floor to questions if anybody wants to ask. Um, totally feel comfortable to put it in the chat if, if you'd like to do that rather than um, unmute yourself. I'm new to the chat thing. So now there's three things in the chat. Do I click that? I don't. <laughs> you can look, you can look at it. We have. A... Awesome. Yeah, I do encourage parents. So something fun I started, it's fun for me, is I did start a subscriber page on Facebook and Originally it was, and it still is just like a smaller, more intimate space where we can share kind of more details, you know, with a smaller group. But then I thought, what, what are all the things I wished I'd had? I, people I wish I could have talked to way back when. So now I've become, I started doing this weekly rotation of speakers. You know, I spoke with an educational consultant a few weeks ago. He's fantastic. Who works with kids from eighth grade on up, um, navigating high school and then finding a post high school opportunity. I have this parent coach that comes on. She's fantastic talking about how to stay emotionally regulated when your kid becomes elevated. You know, she actually talk, talks about picturing it like a tennis court. Last week I had a grief therapist on who, you know, talks about how to, how to navigate grief with a kiddo on the spectrum. So I, every time I talk to somebody like that, I'm like, where were you 15 years ago <laughs> or whatever? But and I think that the world, yeah, the autism world is also developing and there's so much more available for parents today than there probably was when Jack was younger and newly diagnosed. Um, there's definitely a lot more awareness. I think that a big piece from what I heard, parents who I've worked with, um, the fact that kids with autism look so typical and if you're not tuned into the details, you may or may not realize, kind of leads to judgment of the community toward the parents of, hey, why don't you get your kid in order? Or why can't you discipline your child? How come your child's going up the slide when all the kids are waiting to go down? Or things like that. It's a very real challenge because when you have kids who have, say, a genetic issue, it's more readily apparent. Um, and sometimes that can be almost embarrassing and, and cause pushback and parents feel uncomfortable in the community. Um, but I, I think that your perspective of just getting out there and being who you are without being ashamed or embarrassed or apologetic, it's, you know, really um, allows for the community to come toward acceptance. And again, having those phrases ready of saying, you know, we're working with him or something like that, even just to account for the fact that there are no, you know, differences in his, in his development. Um, really can allow for more empowerment, even when you're feeling like you're cringing or don't really mm -hmm. want to be there. 
Yeah, I, I always say that as advocates, I think the inclination is to be like, I, I don't care for that phrase, mama bear. I don't find it useful. Um, you know, science shows us that our brains are hardwired to create a hypothesis about people, circumstances, and places immediately. So we form this conclusion, and then our brain does nothing but scour for evidence to support that conclusion. So as advocates, our job is to get a person we're interfacing with to just budge the needle on what might be a preconceived conclusion. He's rude, he's climbing the slide, he's out of hand, he's not doing the right thing. You know, we don't have to change their whole mind at once, but just introduce some new evidence that might get them to look for a different hypothesis. That's, to me, the purest form of advocacy. So not going in an intense way, but really just making a comment, explaining in a very non-emotional way so that the other person can receive it without getting defensive or exactly. continuing on that judgmental model that they may have started on. Right. Because when we're reactive, we're not teaching or learning. We're not giving or processing information. And the people around us can only take a page from us, right? So if yeah. we present ourselves in a way that's unapologetic and comfortable, then they kind of have no choice but to either accept it or walk away, but definitely not to make it escalate or, or exactly. become more uncomfortable. Wow, thank you, Carrie, so much for all of your information and sharing your experiences. I appreciate that you are open and um, available to share the real experience, right? The, the, the true emotions and the, the feelings that are behind the parent of the child who's doing well, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, I, sure, I, I put your website in the chat. So anybody who wants to sign on to Carrie's, um, find out more about Carrie and sign on to her newsletter, weekly blog, um, and all of the opportunities that you have on your website, please go there. I signed that myself and I really, enjoy it every week. I, I, I feel like I can tap into so much of, of the emotions. You connect so well with people. Um, reading your work really opened my eyes to the realness of living life the way you're living it. Um, I appreciate that. I also put into the chat our a link if anybody's interested in signing up for a free consultation um, with Mastermind feel free to click on it, find a time that works for you, and we'll be happy to guide you and help you if we can, um, and refer you to other professionals if this is not what you're looking for. Um, we're always happy to help if anybody is interested, um, and I appreciate everybody coming. I will hopefully send this out, the recording of today's um, group, to all of the participants, so as long as you sign down with us, you will hopefully receive that um, within the next couple of days. And Carrie, I can send that to you as well. I'm sure that you have people who would benefit from our talk here. So Great. Um, I'm happy to send that out. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for joining. And thank, thank you, you so much for, for presenting. Yep. Be well.